So we have three points in today's message. Our first is considering the first paragraph of chapter four, verses one through five, which is number one, God's approval matters most. God's approval matters most. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So my first thing I want to point out here in verse 1 is how Paul wants to be regarded. He wants the Corinthian Christians to consider him and his team, the apostles and, and their missionary co-workers. He wants to be regarded as servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and biblical studies, you know that oftentimes the word servant is translated as slave, or, and then that's the word doulos, so it's a very famous term that uh, some theologians have brought to people's minds. There's also another word for servant, which is widely known, and that is the word deacon, but this is neither of those words. This is not the word deacon or doulos, but it is a unique word with a more specific and vivid image. It is, in particular, a word for someone who is a certain type of slave, one who is a rower in a warship. The terms that are often used in biblical dictionaries is an under-rower. So someone who rows, but they're under the deck. So they're not up in the daylight, the air, you know, breathing fresh air and seeing the seagulls flying over, but they're under the deck where the soldiers are up on the top with their weapons and things, but all of these slaves are underneath and they're lined up with all their oars, their, their things that they row with, sticking out through the sides and they're rowing in rhythm together. That is the word that Paul is using. So they row under the deck of a warship. There's a few things that you must recognize about these servants, a few characteristics of this job. This is, first off, hard labor. This is difficult. Have you ever used a rowing machine at the gym? It tires you out real quick. Within a matter of two, three minutes, your back is aching, your arms are throbbing, your heart rate is as high as it can get. These people would be rowing for days. So this was hard labor. Secondly, they're often chained to their positions. I don't have a survey of every warship in the ancient Roman Empire. I don't know if every ship chained all of their slaves to their posts, but I know that that was a thing. It was a thing that they did. You've probably seen it in some of these old-time movies. 
And, you know, the ship gets hit and then it goes down and it starts to sink and all these slaves are chained to their, to their oars. So they're often chained to their positions. These people were fully committed to the task, whether willingly or not, probably not, but they were all in. And then next, they are under the authority of the captain and his drum. So he's beating in a certain rhythm in order to get all of them rowing together in unison. Why? Because if they don't row together, well, their oars will hit each other. They won't go straight. They won't go fast. They will not be effective. So they have to row in rhythm so that their oars are are not ineffective. And there is a person, there is an authority figure who sets the rhythm. He sets that beat. He tells them how fast to row. What this means is these slaves have no agenda of their own. They're all in. They're fully committed. They have no agenda. There's nothing else on their schedules this day. They're just going to be rowing for the next number of weeks as they are going from point A to point B. And then the last thing that one scholar pointed out is that these slaves receive no recognition or glory. So suppose that the soldiers on this warship are successful and they ram another ship and they cause that other ship to go down and they conquer the enemy and they bring back the spoils of war and the soldiers are marching down the streets carrying all of their plunder. You know who's not going to be lifted up as the heroes? It's, it's not going to be the under rowers. They're completely overlooked. So when you see this word, and when the Corinthian Christians would see this word, let a man consider us as servants of Christ, as under rowers of Christ, that's the kind of image he's wanting them to think of. It's a powerful, very vivid image. That's just the first one, the word servant. The second is the word steward. Well, what is a steward? A steward is, is like a housekeeper, a, a manager, a person who, who looks after property. A number of us knew uh, my friend named Travis, who was a personal assistant to uh, a billionaire. And so he lives in the guy's house. He drives his multi-million dollar car. He checks the mail for him. He makes appointments. He pays bills. He orders the $12 bottles of water and all of the things the way he wants it to be done. He might not necessarily do every single item because there's a whole bunch of other staff, but he's the chief of staff. He oversees the butler and the cleaners and the people who take care of the back garden, the gardeners, and all these things. That's what a steward does. A steward oversees things. They care for things. They look after the details. They're not the important person. This is how Paul wants to be regarded. He wants to be regarded as a servant, a slave of Christ, one who is just an under rower and, and someone who just looks after the details and makes sure that, that the mysteries of God are attended to. Moreover, it is required, verse two, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. They must be found faithful. Faithful to who or what? Well, faithful to their master, faithful to their boss. Who is their boss? Who is their master? It's God. The authority figure is Jesus. So verse two, they must be found faithful. Verse three, 
Paul is now dealing with Corinthian criticism. Why is this whole thing even coming up? It's coming up because in the Corinthian church, there are these super apostles who are come, who have come in. These are the, the big shots, the fancy, sophisticated, educated, good-looking, well-spoken leaders that have come in after Paul and started building followings after themselves to try to get people to turn away from the path that Paul has set for them and to follow after themselves. What this has done is this has created a lot of criticism of the Apostle Paul, both from the top and then in the pew. It, it, it filters down. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Why does he say human court? Well, in Corinth, even today, you can see it. There is this judgment seat, a bema seat. It has the word bema seat carved into the side of it in English. This is a spot where Paul stood trial. Now he's obviously moved on from this. He's writing back to the Corinthians after he's already been there, after he's established a church there, after he has worked with Aquila and Priscilla and done all these things that are recorded. I think it's in Acts chapter 18, but I could be wrong. So he's referencing the human court, whether I'm judged by you, the Christians, or by the secular folks, the human court, the government. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. For he who judges me is the Lord. When Paul is facing Corinthian criticism, how does he handle it? Quite frankly, Paul completely disregards it. He dismisses it. He's like, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not even going to entertain this. He's doing what wise people do today, and that is you consider the source. Someone comes to you with a juicy bit of information. They come to you with this, this nugget of, of something to say, and they tell it to you. And if you're smart, you'll consider who this person is who's speaking to you. What is their character like? What is their reputation? What is their pattern of life? Paul does not consider this Corinthian criticism the way we often do in customer service, you know, the customer's always right. So, oh, 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 that's, that's very serious. We must take this and pass it on up the chain and we'll, we'll address your concerns. No, that's not what Paul does here. Criticisms must be handled with critical evaluation. Okay, you listen and you hear the concern, you hear the complaint, but you evaluate it and see, is this legitimate? Is this person a fraud who's speaking to me right now? Are they a liar? Does it even make sense? Is it possible? If it's false, if it's impossible, if it comes from false sources, sources or from liars, you just discard it and dismiss it immediately and do not move it forward in any level. Sometimes people are just wrong. The truth is not always some halfway ground in the middle. Sometimes people are liars and their lies should not be entertained as, oh, well, there's a, you know, there's a lot of truth in what they have to say and there's a truth in what you have to say and we need to meet in the middle. No, sometimes people lie. 
Narcissists and psychopaths do, in fact, exist. And if we as Christians do not acknowledge that, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment, for frustration, for traps, for failures, for all sorts of chaos and destruction. Narcissists and psychopaths are people, as the Bible might call them, scorners, the book of Proverbs, or people who are still in their flesh. I read this last, uh, last Sunday from Galatians, the works of the flesh. The medical community might want to diagnose it as a mental illness and say, here, take some pills for this problem, but the Bible would list those characteristics as sinful that must be repented from. I believe that the Corinthian super apostles are those types of people, perhaps some that we would call today narcissists. They play mind games with people to try to to build up these systems of thought amongst people to get people to follow after them. And they're lying the whole time and then they're attacking Paul, their their opponent or their um, competitor. Meanwhile, they're gaslighting everybody in the middle. And Paul dismisses it completely. Look in verse 4. I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. He who judges me is the Lord. What does it mean when he says, I know of nothing against myself? Is Paul claiming to be sinless? Is Paul claiming to be perfect? No. How do we know that? Because Paul doesn't claim to be perfect. How do we know that? Because Paul claims to be, number one, the worst sinner that he knows. First Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And then another text, Romans 7 For I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, to desire, is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I desire to do, I do not. But the evil that I desire not to do, that I do. Now, if I do what I desire not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who desires to do good. And I believe that that text in Romans 7 is describing the life of the Christian, one who has this, now he has a war within him of the flesh against the spirit. The unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever just has the flesh and there is no war within them. There is no desire to obey God. There is no desire to please God. So when Paul says, I know of nothing against myself, he's not saying that he's sinless. He's not saying, hey, I've never done anything wrong. No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the subject at hand, which is this whole apostleship situation. The super apostles criticizing him, saying, oh, he's not a real apostle. You need to reject him, throw him out, and instead follow us, the real super apostles. And he's saying, actually, no, I fulfilled my role. I have done my duty. I fulfilled my calling as an apostle. And frankly, I have not um, done wrong in that role. 
There are no legitimate charges or legitimate claims against me that can be made as an apostle. You cannot say that I have dropped the ball in my responsibilities as an apostle. In his apostleship, he has faithfully fulfilled his calling, particularly in this situation related to the Corinthian church and the controversy contained there. When these super apostles entered and sought to disparage him, they relentlessly attacked him. They criticized him. They mocked him. They might say things like, well, Paul isn't a good speaker or Paul isn't as smart as I am or Paul is ugly or Paul is old or Paul is short or Paul doesn't have a good speaking voice. And he's like, okay, there's these accusations, there's these criticisms, but they're not legitimate. I'll remind you that this type of issue is addressed throughout the Bible. And what is that? It is the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now here's my fear as I go through this section and what I believe is the point of this is that psychopaths and narcissists hear this message and they think, yeah, that's right. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. These are the people whose therapists tell them week after week how they need to be more assertive when they have made life a living hell for everyone who has to put up with them. These people don't feel guilty And they don't apologize if their conscience does happen to start whispering in their ear like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. They assure themselves, like the woman in Proverbs, I have done nothing wrong. But my equal concern is also that those who struggle with unhealthy fear of man will think, oh no, I'm too assertive. The stranger who cursed at me on the sidewalk was right. I really am an idiot who needs to learn how to watch where I'm going. This is the one who said something awkward at a social gathering in 2014 and hasn't returned to that place because they're afraid that the people who were there nine years ago will still be there and will remember what they said. This is the person who, when they receive a text that says, hey, we need to talk, they instantly feel guilty and begin to rack their brain of what they could have possibly done wrong. And the longer they sit and think, the more their imagination runs wild with possible scenarios, making up sins that aren't sins and events that didn't happen. Why? Because they have fear of man. What I've just described to you is fear of man. And as unpleasant as as it is to say, that fear of man is a sin. It is a sin to be repented of. And there's a solution. And the solution to that sinful fear of man described in this, that text I just read, Proverbs 29, 25, is to trust in God. A number of years ago, I worked at a food pantry church across town, and that ministry is very tied in with the organization called Sermon Audio. Um, so if you've ever wondered like, Andy, how do you know this person or that person? Well, I worked for the guy who was president of Sermon Audio and he knows everybody. And so he he put on these conferences at that church, some of which had some fairly well-known speakers, such as Steve Lawson and Conrad Mbewe and Joel Beakey and various other people. And I had to go pick them up from the airport and all these things. So that's what started some of these 
these things. But um, there was a gay activist who lived across the street from the church, and she decided she did not want us to be putting on the conference, the sermon audio conference that we were going to have. And um, she told us that. She's like, no, you're not going to do that. Now, this is an astounding level of chutzpah. This is a, a staggering amount of gall that she has to think that she's just going to walk into the doors of some church and be like, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. And then she starts piling on sending us hate letters. Like the cops said, oh, this is aggravated harassment. You could press charges. And she's at felony level. Um. She had a lot of approaches. She would send us three to five hate letters per weekday. And then when that wasn't quite having the traction she wanted within our organization, she started targeting the speakers, contacting them directly with her hate letters. We ended up moving the conference to a different location in New York City. She started contacting those people, threatening them, getting them to back out of signed contracts. So we ended up moving the conference back to our place since it was like, well, what else is she going to do? Like, she's already done everything she said she was going to do, so let's just go with it since what else does she have to, to do? So then the speakers are calling us and saying, uh, I'm a little nervous about this. Like, what if she blasts the internet like these discernment blogs with my dirty laundry that is out there? Not many people know about, but you know, there are these embarrassing things about me and she might, she might go to the, the Christian tabloids about it. Well, one of those speakers relayed to the president of Sermon Audio that she had contacted him and was threatening him. And, and he said, the wicked flees when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I have nothing to fear. Let her do her worst. So we moved ahead and that particular speaker continued on and then did end up speaking. Now, as I read that proverb, which is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, the wicked flees when no man pursues. Now, I just finished saying that that feeling of guilt when you get that looming text message about, hey, we need to talk, I said that it's sinful to have this type of fear of man. And it's not just sinful, but that's, that's wicked sin. Why? Because it's not trusting God. And I don't say this to beat you down. Those who know me know that this is one of my greatest struggles. Fear of man is a sin and it holds a lot of people back. The image used in the Proverbs in Proverbs 29 is that, that of a snare or a trap, like a bear trap that catches your foot. When your foot is in that trap, you're trying to go somewhere and that trap is chained to the ground. It's holding you back. You're functioning at 30% of what you could be because you're afraid. You're afraid. What will people think of me? What will people say about me? Will they judge me? Will they criticize me if I do this or that? So I would ask you as a pastor to members and visitors, do you have any idea how much the combination of social media and being a pastor feeds this cancerous way of doing Christianity? Not just within me, but within you. So here's a fun story. About a year ago in April, I believe, Emma and I went on a little vacation to Colorado. We were staying uh, maybe two nights right by, um, I think, Estes Park. Um, we were having dinner at this restaurant 
And three buddies of mine from New York City came walking into the restaurant. And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? I saw them, they saw me, they stopped at our table, we said hi, and that was that. They went on, sat down at their own table and, and ate their meal. So as we came to the end of our meal, I told Emma, I, you know, I should go say bye to them before we leave. Uh, and then the idea came to mind, I should, I should take a picture with them too. So I walked over to their, there's the three of them at a four-person table. So there's one seat open and they've got their you know, plates and the big dishes in the middle. So I just sit in the open seat, Emma snaps a picture and on we go. Everything is great, right? Well, They had quite a few bottles of beer open and strategically placed at that open seat at the table. You know, you drink it, you finish it, you set it at the open seat. There were way more than three bottles per person at that table. We're talking a lot of bottles here in this spot. And I'm sitting at that spot in front of this, and then we snap the picture, and on we go. And then I think to myself afterwards... this picture that we just took. So what do you do? Pastor, you got to be careful what you post on social media. Well, here's the thing. If you know me at all, we're talking lowest level knowing Andy, you know that I don't drink at all. And you would know that there's a perfectly rational explanation that doesn't take a lot of creativity to figure out, oh, why is Andy sitting at this spot with 19 empty bottles of beer in front of him? (laughs) Well, he didn't drink them. See how simple was that? So long story short, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't post the picture anywhere. Why? Well, because the fear of man brings a snare. And so I got this snare on my foot, which is fear of man, because somebody's going to criticize you for posting a picture on the internet, sitting next to three buddies that you just happened to run into in Colorado, and you're all from New York, and you just thought it would be fun to grab a picture together, and didn't even think about what was on the table. Also, another way this could look, Pastor, why did you take a selfie with so-and-so? Well, a more biblical response would be to say, I'm sorry, is your opinion the standard by which I'm going to be judged? Oh, really? God made you my judge? That's interesting, because that, that doesn't contradict entire books of the Bible or anything. No problem there. You remember the book of Galatians teaches you're free in Christ, and you can take a selfie with that person, or if someone criticizes, and if someone criticizes you for it, you can remember that the fear of man brings a snare, and whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So if you dig back like five years in my social media, you're like, oh, Andy's got, was it a book signing with John Kerry? You know, the politician. There might be a reason for that. It has nothing to do with anything that's nefarious or in any, it was just there. He was there. The book was free. I stood in line. There were two people in line. He signed it. He asked what I do. I said, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, that's amazing. Thank you for your service. The end. Not a juicy story. Now, the time I took a selfie with Francis Chan, that's a whole other matter. <laughs> just kidding. No, I, I have stopped taking selfies with a lot of f- famous preachers just because it's it's... You never know what's going to happen, and I'd rather not have to go delete stuff. 
So point one, stewards, uh, servants and stewards, God's approval matters most. God's approval matters most. This brings us into point number two, a surprising tone. Point two, a surprising tone. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, apostles, last as men condemned unto death, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, or some Bibles say the scum of the earth the off-scouring of all things until now. And we see in verses 6 and 7 that gifts are of grace and should not be boasted in. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another, one against another. Who makes you differ from one another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? This Corinthian church is famously gifted. They have a lot of special abilities and even miraculous abilities. And he's telling them, guys, the fact that one of you has a certain ability and and can perform a certain miracle, where did you get that from? You got that from God. So why are you boasting? Let's say that that super apostle who is super for a reason because he actually has some, some incredible abilities, where did he get that from? Assuming he's a Christian, where did that come from? That came from God. And if it came from God, why do you boast about it? If it was a gift... Why are you acting like this is something that you brought about? If you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Our second point, verses 8 through 13, the Corinthians' boasting brought strong and sarcastic rebuke from Paul. Why? Because the way of Christ is the way of the cross, which is upside down from the world's way of thinking, which is the way of the flesh. The world's way of thinking is the way of the flesh. So I'll reread that if anyone's taking notes. The Corinthians boasting brought strong and sarcastic rebuke from Paul, period. The Corinthians boasting brought strong and sarcastic rebuke from Paul. This is verses 8 through 13. Because the way of Christ is the way of the cross, The way of Christ is the way of the cross, which is upside down from the world's way of thinking, which is the way 
of the flesh. And oftentimes, even professing Christians or even true Christians drift into thinking with the way of the flesh, the way the world thinks. So they think, for example, in the previous section, well, I have this great ability. I'm so great. I should be elevated. And that Paul guy should be pushed to the side. Get rid of him. That's a very worldly way of thinking. Verse eight, you are already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. He's, he, he's starting to layer on the sarcasm here. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. This is like, imagine that you are, uh, imagine that you're a little league coach and you're teaching a five-year-old how to hold a baseball in his hand. And you stick with this kid till he's 18. And you teach him everything he knows. Maybe you're his little league coach because you're his dad. And then he gets this amazing scholarship and he goes off to play at a D1 school. And then his, his arm strength is improved and he's now throwing in the upper 90s and all these scouts are looking at him. And then the draft comes and he gets signed to a really big contract by the Yankees. And you're like, hey, son, can you give me some tickets for your major league debut? And he says, sorry, new number, who's this? He says, dad, I don't want to talk to you. He's acting like he did this. He's acting like he's somebody now, even though you're the one who taught him everything he knows. Paul is saying here in the end of verse eight, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. Oh, these people have become puffed up. They think that there's some kind of spiritual royalty. And we, Paul and his team, the people who led them to Christ, who discipled them, who helped them become whatever they are. Now he's like, well, it would be nice if someday maybe we could achieve the same heights as you. Perhaps you could share some of your royalty and your glory with us if it were possible. But my baseball illustration is very faulty because these Corinthians are actually still far below Paul and his team. They're not the kid who got signed by the Yankees and is having his major league debut. This is the kid who is a bench warmer on his little league team with mandatory play. And he thinks he's too good to be seen with his mom or dad when they pick him up after the game. So he hides his, his, his face as he's walking off the field. Even though his night was uh, 0 for 3 with three strikeouts and four errors in right field. So Paul is saying, I could wish that you did reign so that we could reign with you. I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. As men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Please remember that this is not just an, we're not living in a natural world. We're living in a supernatural world and that angels and demons are real and the spiritual realm is real and that they are looking on and they are watching. And that God often does things in our lives 
that have nothing to do with us, but because in the life of Job, for example, there's a whole spiritual realm and some bets that are being made in that realm between God and some angels and demons that have nothing to do with you, but you happen to be involved in it, if your name is Job. We've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. God looking down saying, have you considered my servant Job? God is the one who brings up Job's name multiple times to Satan. First Peter tells us that angels long to look into the mysteries of the gospel. They don't understand the gospel because there is no redemption for angels. They cannot be saved, so they don't understand Salvation, they don't understand the songs of the redeemed. They don't understand this mystery of Christ. Though they might know things about God more in depth than we do, they don't understand the gospel and they certainly haven't experienced the gospel. And so that's what makes this a spectacle, not only to the world who doesn't understand the gospel, but also to angels who don't understand the gospel. So the entire cosmos is looking on at this Paul situation in Corinth and they're saying, what is going on? Paul saying, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. You really know what's going on. We're just ignorant. We're, we're stupid. We're idiots. But you guys are the smart ones. We're weak, but you're strong. For those who are parents, you know, you have your little kid and your kid can't do anything. And, like he can't stand, he can't walk, he can't talk, he can't feed himself, he can't like nothing. But then you start to try to help him and then he gets agitated because he wanted to do the thing, but he can't do the thing. Whether it's feeding himself or standing up without falling over and hurting himself or hitting his head on a sharp corner or something. We are weak and you are strong. These Corinthians, are, they're, they're caught up in such basic sins that the world doesn't even fall for. Yet they think that they're strong. And they think that Paul and his mission team members who literally led them to Christ and founded the church are stupid and foolish and weak and have nothing to offer them because they're not as snazzy. They don't have as many bells and whistles as their own superhero apostles. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Now, there's some truth here. There's some truth in every bit of joke or sarcastic comment. Paul and his team were dishonored by these very people. Verse 11, to this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless You can say things about us. You can talk about us. We know that you're talking about us. We know you're saying negative things about us, even though you are children in the Lord. You're our children in the faith, yet you're trash-talking us, and that word is getting back to us. And we know that. We're being reviled, but we still bless you. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I don't have any of this underlined, but Paul says some very nice things about these people. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. He's looking for things to affirm in them. He's saying, you're very gifted. 
And it's true. Even though they're jerks, even though they're very mean people, they're very divisive. Yet Paul is affirming them, he is blessing them. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. He's still appealing to them. That's what entreat means. He's he's leaning in when the Corinthians are pushing back. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. That song that we've started singing, May Christ Be All and I Be Nothing, that's really the right way of thinking. The Corinthians are boasting in their greatness. And the irony is that the great apostle Paul, who's more educated and more entrusted with direct revelation from God and has more spiritual power than they could ever hope to have, is the one that they are comparing themselves to and the one that they are criticizing. And he's the one saying that they are better than him in a very sarcastic tone. So this is point number two, a surprising tone. Let's move on. Point three, a father to son. A father to son. Verse 14 through 21 says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everyone in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? We consider in verses 14 and 15, Paul's relationship to them described in father-son terms. Paul's relationship as a father to son. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Paul's purpose first is not to shame them, He's not writing this because he's mad at them and he wants to get them. He's not like, oh, I'm going to show them with his really inflammatory letter. No. But it's to lovingly warn them. A good father will correct a wayward son. When he sees his son going in a bad direction, a good father will say, no. No, son, don't do that. Don't go that way. Verse 15, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. Think of this like the internet teachers, bloggers and podcasters. Like everyone wants to be an instructor. Everyone wants to have a following. They want to get those subscribers and the Patreon donors and all those things. And it's easy to produce content. But when you have to deal with the outflow of that content, when you have people texting you or asking you questions or sitting in your living room and small group asking things, wanting to know, hey, well, how does this work? You, you said this, you know, is your explanation of a various thing, but I just was wondering about background material before that. 
family relationships in the body of Christ, family talks, family conversations, that's not what these celebrity preachers want. The 10,000 instructors in Christ, they want people to just sit down, shut up, and listen, and send me, send me your money, and I'll just tell you how it is. But you Corinthians do not have many fathers. But Paul is truly their father in the faith. You see that at the end of verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul is truly their father in the faith, begotten you through the gospel. There's all these genealogies in the Bible that will talk about this person begat, so and so who begat. It means you fathered them. You brought them forth there. That's your kid. So I'd ask you, have you been born again by the power of the gospel? Because that's this birth language. Do you have a father in the faith? Have you come to know Jesus by faith? Not by works, not by your righteousness, but by trusting in Jesus, the one who is righteous. If you don't know what that means, I would encourage you to come talk to me after the service. These people in this Corinthian church are people that Paul has led to Christ. He has taught them about Jesus and they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they have been saved because of his influence, because of his ministry. And so because of that, they are his children in the faith. Which is why he has this relationship as father to son. Which is also why I believe a good church will have family relationships within it. This is why Paul sets those family relationships for Timothy and Titus in how they are to relate to various types of people within the church. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, younger men as sons, older men as fathers. That's the paradigm. Not strangers, all these different types of people, hey, relate to that person as a stranger, and this person as a stranger, and this person as a stranger, and this person as a stranger. No, but it's family. The second subpoint is verses 16 to 17. Paul's son is sent to instruct others in the way of their father. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. These Corinthian Christians have taken this path of insanity. They've been led astray by these Pied Pipers of the super apostles who are filling their heads with all kinds of crazy ideas. And Paul's saying, I'm going to send Timothy, my son in the faith, and he's going to remind you of the things you once learned from me. And he gives them this appeal to imitate him. And then last are verses 18 through 21. Paul's desire to visit and words of warning. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the power of those who are puffed up, but the not, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? The choice is yours. We can do this the easy way or the hard, hard way. 
I can turn this car around. We can stop and deal with this right now if you want. Or you can just listen to me right now and we can do this the nice way. That's what he's saying. Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Do you want our conversation when I show up to be pleasant? Or do you want it to, do you want it to be hard? The choice is yours. This is the way a father speaks to a son. He's direct, he's open, he's honest. There's reassurance there. Saying, hey, I'm not doing this to shame you, but I love you and I'm warning you. I, I don't want to see you go this direction. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send your brother in the faith, Timothy, to help get you back in line. But please remember, I am going to come and see you. This is a father to a son. And these things all fall under this this heading, this topic of servants and stewards. What type of slave of Christ are you? Well, you're the kind who, your life doesn't belong to you. And if God tells you that you need to be fathers to these people that you've led to Christ, if God tells you, hey, you you have to confront them when they're going astray, then you have to do that. You have to warn them. Well, then you have to do that. Why? Because God's in charge. You can't just let things slide. So please also remember in final review of closing, that it is God's approval that matters most. If you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you are not believing in him, you do not currently have the approval of God in any way, shape, or form. And if you want to get that approval, and you really should, and you should want that, you can get that. But it is through Christ, through his gospel, trusting in Jesus as your only hope and your only righteousness. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would take these simple words and apply them to the hearts of your people in ways that they need and that you know. And I pray that anything that should not have been said would fall from their minds and memories. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit through your word, and we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.